Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rail Group On Air, presented by Railway Age and Railway Track and Structures magazines and International Railway Journal. I'm your host, Bill Wilson, and I am the editor-in-chief of RTNS Magazine, and welcome to another podcast. This is Rail Group On Air. Tweet on Twitter is not supposed to read like a book. People try by sending multiple tweets on a particular subject. Christoph Spieler has a way of Twittercizing his observations of transit systems. The social media outlet, known for quick comments, is where I digitally ran into Spieler. It was a tweet that raved about Ottawa's Trillium line and its single-track efficiency. Ottawa's new light rail system has been on the negative side of the news for months, so seeing something positive on the commuter rail service caught my eye. Spieler is a transit mapper. Two years ago, he published a book called Trains, Buses, People, an opinionated atlas of U.S. transit. The book maps all of the light rail and bus rapid transit systems in the U.S. It contains maps of each metro area, the population, the system that is being used, and an analysis of what makes each system successful, why some systems have high ridership, why some don't, why decisions were made, and how the systems were developed. Through Twitter, Spieler agreed to an interview for this podcast. And we talked about his book, Certain Transit Systems, Houston Metro's Long Range Plan, Ottawa's Efficient System, The Need for High-Speed Rail Between Major Cities, and Transit Life After COVID-19. So here is my interview with Christoph Spieler. So about that book, you know, when you're going through it, when you're researching for it, anything stick out at you as, as being particularly good or particularly not so good? I think part of the point of the book is the most important thing about transit isn't technology. Um, the most important thing is putting the transit in the right places and then offering the right level of service on it. And, and that decision of where are we going to invest transit dollars? is something a lot of cities get wrong repeatedly. Um, that I, There's a lot of examples of cities which have spent a lot of money on really wonderful infrastructure in places where it does not get good ridership because it simply doesn't go where it will be useful to the most people. Um, and, and so that I see over and over again. And there's some cities which absolutely get this right. Like I think Seattle, in their light rail extensions is doing a really good job of connecting to centers and is doing a really good job of linking to the bus network and thinking about it as a whole network and not just individual lines. Um, And even if you go further back, I think if you look at the DC Metro compared to BART in San Francisco, um, what you see is two systems planned at the same time, essentially the same technology, um, essentially the same size, but significantly higher ridership in D.C. And the reason for that is D.C. made a real effort to put stations in the middle of places where people wanted to go. And then after the system was built, made a real effort to build walkable places around stations. Whereas San Francisco focused much more on easy right-of-way, like here's a railroad track, here's a freeway, let's follow those. 
and in doing that, missed the existing density and also missed opportunities to develop around it. So talk about Houston Metro's long-range plan. Uh, again, that was approved by voters uh, last November, and, and talk about some of the benefits, uh, what that's going to bring benefit-wise to the ridership. So it is, it's, I think it's a really strong plan, and one of the reasons it's strong is it's a system, and it's building on the redesign of the bus network, which focused on frequency, which focused on nice, straight, logical routes, which focused on doing a grid that connects to all of Houston's major employment centers. So we don't just have downtown. We have the Texas Medical Center, which is many jobs in downtown San Diego. We have Uptown. We have Greenway Plaza. Um, and this plan doubles down on that. It does a core spine network of light rail and BRT routes that connect more of those centers together that actually follows some of our highest ridership local bus corridors. Um, it then also invests a lot in improving those local bus corridors and um, better stops and in transit priority and in basically upgrading frequent routes to be a better rider experience. Um, and then also overlays on top of that a conversion of the park and ride buses to a two-way regional express bus network and really looks at how all of those things link together. Um, and it's focused on connecting multiple major employment centers, connecting universities, and providing good service in the densest parts of the city and in areas um, that really need that economic opportunity. There's, there's a real focus on connecting low-income neighborhoods to job centers and to education. Um, and I think the most important thing is it's not just a plan for, you know, here's our top five list of capital projects. It's really a plan for a whole network that works together. From a light rail perspective, what do you what do you think about 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 the plan, the long term plan? So I mean, it's it's interesting because it's like every city we're we're based on our history. So essentially, what the plan does is it maps out a network of light rail and BRT lines, which this plan essentially sees those two as equivalent. We're talking full BRT, dedicated lanes, proper stations, and everything. And for the purposes of this plan, those two are seen as one unified network. The decision as to whether each line is BRT or light rail is basically based on where the existing light rail lines are. That the lines which are logical extensions of an existing line become light rail, and the lines which are standalone new lines um, become BRT, which ends up being a little ironic because of the politics of the last round of light rail expansion. Um, we actually ended up building light rail more towards the east than towards the west. Um, and that ends up continuing because that's where the previous light rail lines were. So when you look at it on a map at first glance, it looks, it looks like a, an unbalanced system. But what you have to realize is it's not just a rail system. It's a rail plus BRT system. So on your Twitter account, that's how I got to uh, really got introduced to you, is uh, you really outlined Ontario's Trillium line as being a very, uh, I don't know how you put it exactly, but a very efficient running system. Do you want to talk about what you found there and, and what impressed you the most? Yes, yeah, so, so what's remarkable about this is one of the things I mapped in the book is I looked at commuter rail, which I feel is, there's it's one of the lost opportunities in U.S. transit. And so I looked at 
all of the commuter rail lines in the United States, and I've been doing a follow-up and doing the same kind of mapping for Canada, and the most frequent commuter rail line in, the, in North America is in Ottawa. It's the Trillium Line in Ottawa, and it runs a train every 12 minutes all day. And in the densest parts of Boston or Philadelphia or New York City or Toronto, there's no other line that frequent. And what's odd about that is it's actually a single track line. Normally, we would think that to run a 12-minute headway, you would need full double-track infrastructure. But instead, this is a single track repurposing of an existing freight rail line. And what they did is they absolutely optimized the technology. They got, they put passing sightings in exactly the right places and have a schedule that works exactly with the infrastructure so that if you ride a train from one end of the line to the other, you will go through three different passing sightings, one of them at a station, two of them between two stations, and at every one of those passing sightings, you'll pass a train going in the opposite direction, and all of those passing points are perfectly timed so that, for example, between Bayview and Carling Station, you are going to pass the train going in the opposite direction, but the total time between those stations is only four minutes. So in that time, you are passing that other train. Um, and if you look at commuter rail operations elsewhere, I can't think of another example in North America that gets that much service out of that little infrastructure. And, and what I see here is a real attitude. It's an attitude towards saying we are absolutely going to make the most of the infrastructure we have, and we are going to solve problems through smart scheduling and smart planning and smart, well-timed, um, highly accurate operations, um, rather than by throwing more infrastructure at it. Um, and it, there's a German saying, which is, organization before electronics, before concrete. And I think in the United States, we often do the opposite, that we focus a lot on building infrastructure and the service is an afterthought and we try to solve service problems with infrastructure. And what I like here in, in that example in Ottawa is just how much they thought about service and operations versus solution. And the reason why I think it's worth looking at is there are a lot of commuter rail lines in the United States which have high potential demand. If you look at places like northern New Jersey, there's an extraordinary amount of density around those lines. Um, and those lines could serve a lot of different trips, not just nine to five commuters to Manhattan. Um, you know, people going to the local hospital, people going to work in New Jersey, people um, connecting from local buses. Um, and instead, they're running every hour in the middle of the day. And the infrastructure is there. In a lot of cases, we're talking about double-track commuter rail lines. They have more infrastructure than Ottawa does, yet they run far less service. And I think there's a real potential on a lot of existing infrastructure to run much better service and also do what Ottawa did, which is fully integrated with the rest of the system. They don't have a separate fare structure for this thing. They have great connections to busways and light rail at both ends. Um, and so it functions as an integrated part of the transit system. And they get an extraordinarily high level of ridership out of that. Um, and that, to me, is a real lesson to be learned. 
Is there any uh, transit agency in the U.S. that might be trending towards what Ottawa is doing? I mean, you mentioned Seattle and, and it, it's light rail expansion. You know, you're there in Houston Metro. Do you see anyone in the U.S. attempting to trend towards what Ottawa is doing? I mean, obviously, I mean, we have this funny line in the United States where we almost think of commuter rail as a different creature. And, like, the technical definition of commuter rail here is if it shares tracks that are part of the overall freight rail system, it is commuter rail. Um, if it is separate, it's light rail or streetcar heavy rail. Um, and I think the kind of operational precision Ottawa does on commuter rail is quite common on U.S. light rail. The idea that you have an end-of-the-line station where a train turns around in less than six minutes, that's common on light rail. On commuter rail, you see trains being scheduled for 20 minutes or more at the end of the line. So if you look at U.S. light rail, you will see a lot of sort of similar approaches to operations. If you look at U.S. commuter rail, though, um, it's pretty uncommon. What you are seeing is you're seeing some of the newer systems, like I think um, TexRail in Fort Worth, for example, feels operationally a lot more modern than most U.S. commuter rail. It both in terms of equipment, but also just in terms of how they schedule it. The fact that it's on a clock face headway and the trains at the same time every hour. Um, but so I think you are starting to see some of that creep in, um, but not nearly enough. And I think the places where you see it the least is actually the places where it would do the most good, which are those large legacy systems. I point to one standout among the large legacy systems, and that's Caltrain in San Francisco, which is electrifying, and after they electrify, is intending to go to all-day frequent service. Um, and that will be a really good service in a corridor that really needs it. And I hope a lot of those other legacy systems look at Caltrain and follow that example. Virgin has kind of dumped, you know, splashed into the the regional train service uh, in the U.S. Here, they they are working on a line in Florida. They have part of that line already done, and, and now they're looking to also add a line between you know in Las Vegas, between Las Vegas and Southern California. What any any comment on on their approach? Uh, they're they're doing more higher speed rail there, um, and what they say is in Florida, their system is you know their bright line system is very successful. What do you, what do you and I will say, I have not written Bright Lines. I intend to, but I have not. Um, and it wasn't yet in operation when I wrote the book. Um, so a couple of thoughts. I mean, first of all, they are trying to be a private operator, a private for-profit operator running intercity rail. And so far, we don't know how successful that is. Um, we have a transportation system where basically every mode of transportation gets government subsidy. Um, so expecting intercity rail to make money when we don't expect interstates to make money um, could be problematic. So from a business plan standpoint, I think there's an outstanding question of does the, does the Virgin Trains model make sense? Um, I would say from a different standpoint, though, of, is this the kind of service we should have more of? I would say absolutely yes. That one of the things I think we are not doing enough in the United States is just good, reasonably fast, comfortable, frequent 
inner city rail service on corridors where you have cities where the distance between them means that rail can truly be competitive. And we have examples of that, obviously the Northeast, but for example, the, the trains between Milwaukee and Chicago are that um, the Capitol Corridor in California is a really great example, really well done um, between, between San Francisco Bay Area and Sacramento. I think there's a lot more places where that would be relevant. And I do think we make a mistake sometimes in immediately jumping to high-speed rail. It seems like, you know, especially when I look back at the discussion under the Obama administration, so much of it was focused on essentially we need bullet trains. Um, whereas there are a lot of cases where there are existing tracks which can be upgraded to run higher speed, but not true high-speed service in these kind of regional corridors, where I think the market's absolutely there. Um, and again, like that is, that, is like the, that is like the Ottawa idea of let's think about the infrastructure we have and think about how to use it. And um, the Capital Corridor in California is actually the way they got it, is that they did an agreement with Union Pacific Railroad where they basically agreed to a certain number of trains a day and then said, if we want to add this many more trains, we will build this infrastructure. We will put in this signal system. We will put in this passing siding. We'll upgrade these tracks so that they came up with this path of infrastructure upgrades linked to service upgrades, which allowed them to sort of incrementally increase the service steadily over years um, to the point where that's really nice all-day service, really convenient schedules. And it's a great way to get between those two cities. And I think there's a lot more city pairs like that. COVID-19 has taken everyone uh, by storm, uh, turned a lot of things upside down in this country. The transit agencies are suffering. Um, have you been able to really envision life after COVID-19 and how public transit agencies are going to recover from this? Because as you know, a lot of employers are allowing their workers to work from home, and when this is all settled, they might stick with a work-from-home plan, and that would hurt public transit. Um, how do you envision this? How do you envision public transit coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, no, and, and I think there is a, I think there's almost three different questions. Um, one is the effect on transit agencies, um, which is a really big worry. This is a huge financial hole for transit agencies. Um, the, the federal CARES bill did a great amount of good in terms of that, but I think a lot of transit agencies are still going to find that this loss of ridership, loss of fare box revenue, and the loss in local tax revenues that will come as a result of the recession we are heading into. Um, will put their budgets in really tough shape. And that often leads to the kind of cut service, cut raise fares, lose ridership spiral that we have seen before in recessions like this one. So I think there is a real worry for transit agencies on that front. I also think there is a real, there's, this has been really tough for transit workers. You are seeing bus drivers getting infected. You are seeing bus drivers dying. Um, this is really tough internally for the agencies, and and that will take a while to recover from too. Um, 
So that's one question. I think the second question is what it means sort of for the politics of transit, because they have a real worry there that there's already sort of a story being established around, you know, in a post-COVID era, transit is more dangerous or transit is less relevant. There was a absolutely shoddy research paper that came out that claimed the New York subway spread COVID and anybody who dug into the data quickly realized it was pretty much nonsense, but it fits this talking point and it fits the talking point that you can already see anti-transit think tanks doing of saying, you know, COVID tells us we ought to be dependent on cars. COVID tells us we ought to be focusing on sprawl. COVID tells us that we shouldn't invest in transit. So I can absolutely see COVID joining autonomous vehicles and Lyft and Uber and other things and the list of reasons why people give why we shouldn't put money into transit. And I think transit agencies are going to face a tougher political climate. And then the third question, which is how does this change cities and how does this change how people um, how people live and travel? And I actually think on the third question is the one I'm least worried about, that I think if we hit, look at the history of disasters, um, they don't change the world nearly as much as we think they would. Um, I, I did a piece once for the Houston Chronicle where I looked at, you know, the earthquake in San Francisco and hurricanes. And, and generally what happens afterwards is people want to go back to the lives they lived before. People want normality. And so cities rebuild what they had before. People go back to the lives that they had before. Um, I don't think that in a big picture, cities are going to be any less desirable to live in. I don't think people who live in cities are going to be generally less open to using transit. Um, land use isn't going to change that suddenly. I mean, if you even, like, think in 9-11, a lot of people were arguing that, um, you know, high-rises would be obsolete because people would be afraid to live in, to, to work in high-rises after 9-11, and that didn't happen at all. Um, people were saying people would be afraid to fly and you'd see the airline industry die, and it didn't die at all. Um, and, and so I think there's a tendency to overestimate those impacts. I think we are going to see lower ridership as we recover, not just because of COVID, but because of the economy. And like you said, there'll be some percentage uptake in work at home. It'll take some time to recover from that. But I don't think we're going to be talking about a dramatic lasting change. I think we're going to be seeing the same kind of fluctuations that we see in recessions. Um, and so that's not good. That's not good for transit agencies. It's obviously not good if people lost their jobs and they're not riding transit because of it. Um, but I don't think we're going to see the kind of long-term lasting effects that some people fear. But on the other hand, I also know that none of us knows anything that we haven't had something like this in a long time, and we don't really know what the world looks like afterwards. Christoph, thank you so much for your insight. I really do appreciate. I do appreciate it. It's it's a great perspective, and uh, you offer up some great remedies. So thank you so much. And anybody who found this interesting, the book is called "Trains, Buses, People: An Opinionated Atlas of U.S. Transit" from Island Press. And you can get that from Island Press or just on Amazon um, and at Christoph Steeler on Twitter. You're no one if you're not on Twitter. And if you aren't there already, you've missed it.
If you haven't been bookmarked, retweeted, and blocked, you might as well not have existed. Just a fascinating conversation with Christoph Spieler. Again, you can find him on Twitter. He is at Christoph Spieler. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-O-F-S-P-I-E-L-E-R. I'd like to thank Christoph Spieler for joining us today. We will be back soon with another podcast for RTNS Magazine. I'm Bill Wilson, and I will see you down the line. Page was all you really needed to seem like a success, but not a geek. Not a geek. Oh.